0: The top one's loose. it doesn't matter when you have a loose top. It doesn't matter if the tough. top is loose, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Is it still recording? Evil Kniebel. <laughs> Imagine evil Kniebel. It's a little nibbling, like, hamster or rodent, and it's got on, like, the the hat for stuntmen stuff. It's a gerbil. i find you and dismember you. Hi, I'm Aura Van Denk, and, you know, you're watching another episode of Murders A Drag. This is 34, 34 strong, however many videos I have, I'm not counting, I'm sure nobody else is counting, Uh, and most of them are numbered, so get it together, Becky, what the fuck are you doing? So, I am in California again because I moved here. I'll be back in North Carolina for Christmas to, you know, get my stuff, because this was pretty, um, impulsive, but much needed. It's definitely made me a bit of a mess in the meantime because I am literally weeks away from finishing my degree. In my mind, it's perfect timing. Finish your degree, graduate, move. That's how it should work. But I decided to do it literally all at the same time. And I say literally because I mean literally. That being said, my schedule has transitioned into this bi-weekly thing. I didn't plan on it, but it started to happen right after I moved my episodes to Fridays, so now it's every other Friday, and that sounds good. It has a good ring to it to me, and it works for now, so I'm here for the ride if you are. That's all I'm gonna say about that. Um, again, I'm a bit of a mess, and I forgot my entire camera setup this week. Thank God my boyfriend has the exact same camera as me, but I didn't bring my microphone either, so I apologize for any audio discrepancies this week. Another thing I don't really think people are paying attention to. And while we're on the topic of my messiness, I wanted a mimosa this morning and decided Fuck going to the store, because people suck and the COVID numbers are spiking, so we had some whiskey and coke at the house, and it's 2.15pm, and this isn't a mimosa, but it's in my mimosa glass, so, cheers. Mm. This week's a little bit different from the videos that I normally do. I know that I'm generally always saying that I don't focus on the killers. I won't say that this episode necessarily revolves around the murderer, but I definitely have to kind of give you his backstory, because it was a series of murders. And there's controversy behind whether or not he should be called the serial killer that I really don't understand, but whatever. He killed a lot of people. I need to talk about him in this episode. He's gross, though, so I'm not glorifying him or romanticizing it. Our lovely story this week begins in Canada with a group of mostly closeted gay men. Skandaraj Navaratnam, Abdul Basir Fazi, Majid Kayen, Sarush Mahmoodi, Karushna Kumar, Kanagaratnam, Dean Lysawik, Selling Essene and Andrew Kinsman. These men were aged 37 to 58 and they all had one thing in common. An encounter with Bruce MacArthur between the years 2010 and 2017 that ended in them disappearing. Toronto, Canada has one of the largest gay populations in the world. Toronto is also one of the biggest provinces in Canada, so there's just a large population of people there in general. There's big cities, lots of clubs, lots of bustling life going on. That leads to the LGBT community and other marginalized communities being targeted by the the inevitable amount of evil people that are living there. In this case, both the victims and killer were members of the LGBT community, which is not uncommon. You know, we've had people like Jeffrey Dahmer and Randy Kraft. I've covered a few of them. But this case was definitely not similar to anything I have ever read before, actually. This crazy story is going to lead to start with some killer biography, as much as I hate it, but I'll make it amusing because it's, it's not important for me to be respectful towards a serial murderer, so. Thomas, bitch-ass, Donald, bitch-ass, motherfucking Bruce MacArthur, cunt, the third. I added on the third, that wasn't real. Was born out in bumfuck nowhere, Ontario, and he was raised on a farm in Argyll, which reminds me of the Argyle meth from that show. I think it's the one with a dog that does a lot of drugs and is also a cop. Paradise PD. That's what it's called. That show. Yep. Okay. Anyway, he went to a one-room schoolhouse like a fucking 1800s child, like Marvelous Misadventures a Flapjack style, one-room school bell schoolhouse thing, where he was known popularly as a little tattletale bitch and was trying to be the teacher's pet and went telling all the kids. That's the only thing that people from his childhood remembered about him. He didn't have a lot of friends because he was a little cunt. I don't know where this episode is going, but it's it's off the rails. <sighs> no use trying to steer this train right. Thomas knew that he was gay from a very young age. He was aware that he was attracted to men. He He knew that he was gay, but he had an Irish Catholic mother and a Protestant father, so it wasn't really an option in his mind to come out to them. Among all of those struggles that he had, his parents also butted heads about religion, and he was kind of forced to take his mother's side. And if you know an Irish Catholic, then you know why he was forced to take his mother's side. There's no choices there. Yeah, so it definitely wasn't an option for him to come out to either of those people. Neither of them were going to be accepting of him, and were already giving him a hard time for just sinning by being a troublemaker and not having a girlfriend. By the age of 16? I don't know. Society's weird. So, under all that creepy pressure that parents put on kids to have sex with women, well, male children, and female children to go have sex and get pregnant, it's just really weird to me that, like, parents care about that. Like, I wouldn't care if my kid was single forever or was not interested in, like, get out of your kid's pants. They don't want you in there. Nobody wants you in there. I also, for the record, while we're on the topic, I don't like Call Me By Your Name. I'm going to be 100% honest. That boy is too young for that man, and that man is too old for that boy, and he's a teacher that is a position of authority. This is statutory rape, people. Why do people like that movie? I don't get it. Based on that pressure, I guess, or just him being weak as an individual, he married Janice, some high school sweetheart, right out of high school, and tried to settle into some kind of a normal life after that. And then his parents died before the 80s. Both of them died before the 80s. And although he was sad because he was close to his parents, he was also like, hmm, I can probably go fuck guys now. Because he didn't care about Janice, he just cared about what his parents were gonna think. That was the only reason he was with Janice in the first place. So, poor Janice, you know, she didn't make it. That Janice is Janice Joplin. That was not a good joke. I'm gonna put it in there anyway, though. After his parents died, he got really involved with the church to suppress his grief and maybe his homosexual feelings. Didn't really seem like he felt any type of way about his, uh, homosexuality. He seemed like he just wanted to act on it, and that was that for him. Over the years with Janice, he had a son and a daughter with her, so he really committed to this- to this beard lifestyle that he was living. Uh, I won't give him any kind of excuses about the time period, because there was plenty of people who were actively seeking more rights, as gay people at the time it was sort of the beginning of the revolution for civil rights and for you know individual rights for people so there was no reason for him to still be acting like this in a negative way no excuses for you you douchebag so he had the kids and then he became a traveling salesman for a sock company which is one of the most ridiculous jobs that I've ever heard of so he's traveled around and sold socks to support his family and By the early 90s, MacArthur was already sleeping with men on the side, cheating on his wife with men. And Bruce ended up talking to the police that same year because his son had been harassing women over the phone with crude phone calls, women that he didn't know. So his son kind of exhibited more serial killer behavior before his dad did. But either way, it's obviously genetic because his son was batshit, his dad was batshit, and both of them were dangerous, so. By 1997, MacArthur decided to leave Janice and pursue his new life as a family abandoner and creepy old gay man. I'm sorry, let me add creepy, predatory gay guy to that because, you know. It didn't take very long for those urges that he was now fulfilling to turn violent and he started getting in trouble for incidents that he caused. On Halloween of 2001, Bruce MacArthur hired a gay sex worker to come over to his house and do some gay sex stuff. When the man arrived at Bruce's place, Bruce violently attacked him from behind with, he called the cops and he was taken to the hospital where he was treated for a concussion and the wound on the back of his head from being hit with an iron pipe. And Bruce had turned himself in because obviously there was really no getting out of that and told police that because he had sniffed poppers and was taking Prozac, he couldn't remember any of it. Which really doesn't make sense to me because I know plenty of people who take Prozac and sniff poppers and can remember everything and also don't hit people with pipes. That's not, that's not an excuse. But they bought it, you know white privilege and all that. He was given a very small slap on the wrist essentially, and put on like a house arrest probation kind of deal, which he was eventually taken off of because he worked the system, kissed some ass, got it expunged from his record. So people really had to dig to find that out about him, and that was only after he made headlines. While the proceedings were in progress for that assault, MacArthur wasn't stopped, he wasn't halted, he was still busy making accounts on BDSM websites for gay men to live out his creepy fantasies with them through direct messaging, meet up with them, and he quickly gained a reputation for breaking agreements, hurting people beyond what they agreed to. Generally he had this reputation of don't meet him because he's gonna hurt you because he's a fucking nut job. Those guys are kind of common in gay clubs. I feel like every gay club kind of has a guy like that. That's like, oh, stay away from Kinky Bill. He'll he'll rip your dick off. And it's like, okay, why do we let Kinky Bill stay around the bar then? Since MacArthur had become a regular in the Toronto gay scene, he was also known to have a type. MacArthur was known to be into Middle Eastern and South Asian men. So those guys pretty much knew to stay away from him. In Toronto, there was a large population of immigrants, so there was a lot of new people coming on the scene a lot, and they didn't know to stay away from him. Therefore, his it's not like his pickings were any slimmer because people knew that he was a psycho. By 2011, his reputation went from being an intense BDSM guy to a total creep, don't go around him or he will kill you. But like I said, there were a lot of people who didn't know who he was, and the bars were pretty crowded because Toronto has a huge population, so it's hard for everybody in the bar to know everybody. I mean, that's kind of impossible. There was an, even an incident in the gay neighborhood where he was asked to leave a coffee shop because of his. Crazy behavior, or maybe somebody complained. I'm not sure what happened, but he was asked to leave because of all that shit. And he just ripped everything off the counters, broke glass, went insane in the coffee shop, caused a whole scene, and then walked out. He was publicly crazy too. It's not like you didn't, you only knew that he was nuts if you had talked to somebody. You could just tell. But not everybody could. There was a man named Robert James that told MacArthur that he wanted to distance himself from him because of the crazy shit that MacArthur was doing and the shit that he heard about, and apparently Bruce just went off the handle, lost his mind, and started screaming, quote, Fucking faggots telling stories about me. You're just like the rest of them. You think I'm crazy. No, I don't think you're crazy. We know you're crazy, Mr. Bruce. You need to, like, get some help, maybe. I feel like I've said enough about how unstable and crazy this guy was. I think you guys understand that he was a nut job and that people knew that he was a nut job, but he was smart enough to know who to prey on. He was smart enough to know who didn't know that he was a nut job or sort of catch on to people who were maybe a little bit more naive because they had come freshly from another culture into this gay scene. Just around that time in 2011 is when men started to go missing. Skandaraj Navaratnam, a 40-year-old gay Sri Lankan refugee. His friends called him Skanda, and he was known as one of the most upbeat, unique, and smiley people that you could be around, and he went missing in 2010. Skanda was an insanely intelligent and talented person who was also very well-educated, and he was also known to be quote, unbeatable at Scrabble. Friends knew things were not okay when they went to his apartment to check on him and found his new puppy home alone. I'm gonna need a second because that shit wrecks me. You know what? No, I'm gonna need a drink. Let's all drink because we're not gonna bring puppies into this, okay? Let's all agree to not bring puppies into this. Jody Becker, a bartender from a popular gay bar in Toronto called Zippers, with a Z, was quoted saying, His laugh was just ridiculous. If Skanda started laughing, everybody started laughing, even if nothing was funny. Skanda was just that kind of a guy and it was a great loss when he went missing. Abdul-Bazir Fazi was a 47-year-old father of a six-year-old child and an 11-year-old child. He went missing in 2010 and his wife told a court that both of his daughters seven years later still cry for their father. Abdul-Bazir's disappearance flew under the radar because he wasn't known to have any ties to the LGBT community. A lot of the men that MacArthur targeted were in the closet because in his mind there was less of a chance of them being linked to him. Majid Kayan was an Afghani refugee living in Toronto at the time. He was the baby of his family and he had a bunch of siblings who all babied him a lot. He was the tiniest, littlest brother. Like Abdul-Bazir, Majid was in the closet and was believed to be living some sort of a double life in the gay scene of Toronto and with his family, so it was hard to know where he disappeared to when he disappeared. He was reported missing in 2012 when his son couldn't reach his father anymore. Saroush Mahmoudi was 50 years old and was an Iranian refugee, also living some sort of a double life in Toronto. And it goes without saying that these men weren't right for stepping out on their wives and their families, but it's a little more understandable because they were refugees from a different culture who violently persecuted and murders gay and LGBT individuals, so their risk ratio is much higher than ours when it comes to staying in the closet. And it's not to excuse them stepping out on their families, like I said but it definitely supplies us with an explanation as to why a lot of gay men from this culture are in the closet, even when they come to the States. In 2015, when he went missing, Sorush's wife cried to the police about just how broken she was at the loss of her husband and baffled and stumped as to how she was now gonna support her family in a culture that completely relies on a male to run the family, and now she's in the States, she's a refugee, she doesn't, I mean, she was completely lost. Saroosh and his wife had been married for 20 years, maybe even more than that, so this loss was immense to her. Karush Kumar Kanagaratnam was 37 years old in 2016 when he was reported missing. He had been ordered to be deported three years earlier and was believed to be in hiding, but kept in consistent contact with his family. I would have stayed here too, for the record, because there's a literal war tearing his home apart, so if you want to know where I stand on that issue. For whatever reason, this country makes it so hard for people to be safe. His refugee application was denied and he went into hiding. So when he went missing, it was hard for anybody to tell if he was just trying to fly under the radar or if something had happened to him. But his family was absolutely devastated to learn in 2016 when DNA was found in Bruce MacArthur's possession belonging to Karushna, they knew what had happened to him. They had read the articles, they'd read the headlines, they knew that he fit this murderer's MO, so they were crushed. Dean Lysowick was 37 years old in 2016 and had been experiencing homelessness for a number of years by this point. Dean completely broke the mold of MacArthur's MO. He was a white man, he was experiencing homelessness, he was a sort of transient, and he wasn't Middle Eastern or South Asian, so this one threw people for a loop. And it was also kind of hard to link him to LGBT things because he wasn't a gay man, but at the time he was doing whatever he could to get money. Dean's story of how he ended up in his position is tragic and sadly pretty common for people experiencing homelessness today. He was living a fairly normal life, up until his mid-30s when his mental illness started to really incapacitate him. He was unable to keep a job, he was unable to keep a functioning relationship with his daughter, and he ended up on the street. And he wasn't taking his meds, he didn't have access to his meds, so he was in this position of being mentally ill and stuck on the street. He kept in close contact with his cousin and his uncle, and his uncle said that he was on the road to recovery, that he was making good strides in his mental health, and that when he spoke to him, Dean was always very happy and lit up about the prospect of being able to fix a relationship with his daughter and get to know her and have a functioning relationship and a functioning family even with his mental illness that he was learning to control. He spent his late 30s and 40s living in and out of homeless shelters. He wasn't living a very stable life because of his mental illness and because of his housing situation and his daughter gave a statement in court later on saying, I will always have to live with knowing that I will never have a relationship with my father. Dean was believed to have been killed in 2016. But a missing person support was never filed because he wasn't a person that you can normally keep track of. So nobody knew that he was missing. It's kind of the same thing with the man who was hiding as a refugee. Selim Esen was 44 years old and a Turkish immigrant who had moved to Toronto back in 2013. Selim's brother told BBC News, He was very friendly, kind-hearted, open, independent-minded, and curious. He was passionate about learning new things gardening, exploring new places, and meeting new people. His tender and kind humanity came before everything else. Again, this was another fantastically talented, bright, kind individual that was targeted by somebody evil to be murdered. I will never understand as many episodes as I do, as many cases as I research, why these people are chosen to be victims of such evil things. It doesn't it doesn't wrap around my brain. Salim was an all around nature lover. He loved the outdoors, he loved to garden, he loved walking through the woods, taking hikes, he just he loved nature, animals, everything. He also had a strong passion for sociology and psychology and had struggled with addiction in his life and substance abuse. And when he became more educated and sober, he devoted a lot of his time to helping other people become sober and helped people recover from their own substance abuse problems. He was very selfless and kind and like his brother said, his humanity came before anything else. Andrew Kinsman was 49 years old when he went missing in June of 2017. His disappearance and murder was the first to be pinned on MacArthur and led to the discoveries of the rest of the men and those being pinned on MacArthur as well. Andrew was always very active in the Toronto gay scene and was the only, if not one of the only out gay men that Bruce had targeted. Andrew was very well known amongst the gay scene, and his sister told BBC News he wanted to make the world a better place for those struggling to survive. Another selfless person. It's it's like Bruce had a problem with people who wanted to make the world a better place. Andrew's sister also said that underneath Andrew's gruff demeanor, he was a bearded guy, he looked like a leather daddy maybe, he was focused on being a kind-hearted and passionate individual. He had a big passion for social justice issues and was willing to fight for those and was fighting for them. After Andrew's disappearance was reported and the detective started looking into it, they found a diary in his possession with an entry on the day that they believed he was killed titled Bruce. I imagine that when they found that diary with the title Bruce in there, and Bruce MacArthur had no doubt been on their radar once or twice already, it must have been a very cinematic moment. Like, in The Lovely Bones, when the sister finds Mr. Harvey's, like, murder diary, and then she jumps out the window, that part. Among this now new specific effort to search for this Bruce character, detectives were already working since 2012 on separate task forces to try to figure out what was happening with these men going missing in these gay communities. Because Canada's justice system is just better, don't you know? (laughs) There was a task force named Project Prism that was launched to tackle the growing number of missing men. There was an additional project called Project Houston, which was another project to try to find specific suspects, to try to find specific suspects who may have been responsible for these missing people after they were determined to probably be homicides. There were a few other launched, but as you can imagine, once Bruce was found, uh, they were no longer needed, because Canada is better. That main task force that was responsible for most of the footwork involving getting Bruce arrested was Project Houston, and it was headed by Detective Hank Edsinga. And this investigation took a series of twists and turns. And I know that we're already into this video and like there's already been a lot of murders and you're like, okay, when the fuck is this gonna get solved? Are they gonna catch this guy? What's going on? I will assure you it's not over and it's gonna get crazier. So just, just buckle up, buttercup. There was a theory, because it was Canada and it was around the same time, that the person responsible for these murders was none other than Luca Magnata. And you might remember him from my episode about him, and if not, you remember him from the Netflix docu-series Don't Fuck With Cats. He was insane. Every time I even say his name, it makes me physically ill because I saw that fucking video and am scarred for life. Goddamn gore websites when I was 12 years old. I so heavily regret that in Omegle and Roulette and everything else that I ever looked at as a 12 year old that I should have never had my eyes on. I am so sorry, God. The Luca theory was thrown off the window after they realized that there was not enough evidence to support that and that the timelines didn't quite match up. There was another theory where they found this guy, I'll call him Mr. Brunton, because I don't want to give him any more attention than he needs, he's a fucking monster. There was a theory that Brunton had possibly killed all these men and cannibalized them. They arrived at this batshit crazy theory when they found internet conversations on a weird kink website where you discuss cannibalism fantasies that doesn't sound like that should be legal. They found messages between Brunton and a 16-year-old boy where they had made an online agreement that Brunton was going to make this 16-year-old his sex slave, torture him, then dismember him and eat him, and the boy had agreed to it because Brunton was sending him little bits of cash here and there over the years, and over a period of three years he was paid $3,582, which might sound like a lot, but when you break that up into years, like $1,000 a year to have a contract to be eaten alive, like, okay, maybe not alive. I'm not sure the exact logistics of the contract, but I would need a lot more than $3,000 over three years. Like, no way. I'm sorry, kid. You weren't doing it right. Anyway, the contract ended. before the two ever met, because I don't think this kid was ever actually gonna be dismembered, like, allow himself to be dismembered. I definitely think that Brunton had the entire intention to dismember and eat this kid, but it... it, uh, Detectives working that missing men's case, though, looked a little bit deeper into the Brunton guy, and again, the timelines didn't match up, and he had real, actual, like, CCTV footage alibis that would make it impossible for him to be the person. Even though he was a creepy guy who had a cannibalistic sex contract with a 16-year-old, It wasn't him. He wasn't the one here, so maybe Canada's not as good as I thought it was. On January 18th, 2018, Bruce MacArthur was unknowingly followed home by police who had seen him pick up a man and believed that the man who he picked up was in danger, which was probably a good call. Believing that man was in danger, they followed him into the apartment with Bruce shortly after they walked up, and they found the man tied up and handcuffed to the bed with a black bag over his head and Bruce over him trying to duct tape his mouth shut. So obviously they arrested Bruce on site. you know, guns drawn. Nope, it's Canada, they don't have guns in Canada. Sticks drawn, ready to beat the fuck out of him with those things. Once the man was, um, Recapacitated, I suppose. He was able to tell police that he agreed to the handcuffs, the fuzzy, you know, Adam and Eve handcuffs, but then Bruce took out duct tape in a bag and tied him up, and the guy started freaking out. So his life was literally saved by the Canadian police. Fuck yeah, Canada. When police searched Bruce's van, they found blood evidence and were able to both charge him and gain warrants to access all of his properties, which apparently he now had multiple of because he had leveled up from sock salesman, traveling sock salesman, excuse me, to a successful landscaping business owner. So he had multiple properties. Police found a whole like, shit ton of big old pots, like planter pots at his apartments that had like just soil and small plants or no plants in them, but they were all full, very heavy, and you probably see where this is going. Police seized all of them. They ended up with a total of 12 enormous like concrete planter things and there were human remains in them. This dude was murdering people and then fucking planting them in pots. Like he was gonna grow a gay. Like it's, that is not, oh my God. Like this is, that's when this story took a turn for me is when I found out they were putting them in planting pots. Like that is a a Blumhouse, that's a movie right there. This was all, the majority of all of this, I should say, was found at a high-rise apartment in Leaside. So if you live there, near there, and are living in a bougie apartment somewhere, just know that you're not fucking safe, Karen. By early February, police had found six sets of human remains and identified one of them as belonging to Andrew Kinsman, giving us a good idea that the rest of the remains were the other men on the very same list that Andrew Kinsman was on, which was a list of seven men. Then, even more controversy, if you can even fucking fathom that in a case where people were in planters, police ended up releasing images of a dead body in an age where we have plenty of software to give you digital renderings. Sketch artists that have been around since the fucking 20s. I mean, I'm pretty sure there were sketches of Jack the Ripper, so that's far before the 20s. Like a whole multitude of other ways that you can get this man identified, but instead they posted a picture of a dead body and it happened to be that this man was in the closet. So they both outed him and posted a picture of his dead body like out in public news for some reason in 2017, like there's really no excuse for that. And that's what caused a lot of controversy on that end. But it wasn't done as far as the controversy went. After that image was released, they got like 500 tips because people are morbidly obsessed with that kind of shit. And they were eventually able to identify the man in the picture as being Abdul bazir And like I like you've heard earlier in the in the story, he had a family. He was in the closet. Now his name was completely like all over the news. It, his, everybody could see it internationally, people could see it. Even back home, people could see it, which is like even more crushing to his wife than just losing her husband. On February 8th of 2019, last February, a judge sentenced Bruce MacArthur to life in prison without possibility of parole for 25 years, which is very harsh for a Canadian sentence, don't you know? And then, even after his sentence, the boatload of controversy continued on its path of destruction. And it came to light that originally the only people being investigated for these crimes were people of Middle Eastern and South Asian descent because of that stupid theory that serial killers only kill inside their own race, which has been disproven like a billion times with people like Bruce MacArthur, Jeffrey Dahmer, all of the people that I named in the beginning of this episode. Like, you should never do that. Even as a profiler, you should never do that. You're immediately ruling out like a 90%. Of the population. It was racist and people called it out, and there was even more controversy put on them. So, this case really brought out the best in everybody. So, yeah, Bruce is rotting in jail today. I hope that COVID got him. Let's say that. COVID got Bruce. Bruce is fucking dead. Fuck you, Bruce MacArthur, you're dead. So that's the note I'm going to leave you on for some transformation magic. Bam. Drag. Yeah, this is the look. The looky-loo. I'm literally in just a bra because I obviously didn't plan well for this trip. Um, Or this move in general. But we're here. We're a California girl. We're getting used to the new studio. We'll probably be in a different one next week because it's getting finished as we speak. Maybe you heard it during my video. Knows? We'll see you in editing. I hope that the men that I mentioned in this video are remembered for more than just being a victim of a serial killer. They were brothers, fathers in some cases, best friends, regulars at bars, familiar faces around the gay scene in Toronto, and they were robbed of an entire life ahead of them, and diminished to just a victim of Bruce MacArthur. It's the only time that their names are discussed. So I encourage you, I guess, to discuss their names in different settings, remembering them on every day rather than just now when I'm telling you about it, you know? Always think about the people who we've lost due to what we've gone through as a community. That's an important thing to remember. Don't you know, this, this it was kind of a mess today, I'm going to be real. But I'm, I'm glad that it's over. <gasps> well, okay, Mwah. I'll see you next week.